we are going to um, we're going to take a look at some stuff that's not going to be as heavy in scripture content. I apologize in advance, uh, but it it is fundamental to Mormonism to understand these things. I believe. It really is. And, and as I mentioned, right, exactly, they've got, in fact, we'll look at their authority tonight. That's one of the things you've got to get in your head if you are studying with Mormonism, Mormons, is where do they derive their authority and how do they even view authority? Uh, for us, that's a critical subject. Anytime we're talking with anybody, we want to get, we want to get them to the point that we're studying the Bible to understand what's written there because we view that as the authority uh, of God, that it is His message to us. But with Mormons, it's a very radically different idea. <clears throat> so you can already tell the things that we've talked about uh, per this slide that many of these things, there's not really much said about them in the Scripture. Even the passages we've looked at kind of leave your mouth a little bit of gate and say they, they believe that that says what. Um, so it kind of kind of makes you understand or at least question where they're getting this stuff. And, of course, the answer is they're getting it from other sources, largely. The Doctrine and Covenants, uh, the Pearl of Great Price, not in particular the Book of Mormon. There just isn't a lot of Mormonism taught in the Book of Mormon, and that's mainly because of its early date. The more radical ideas of Mormonism came later. Uh, and of course, the Book of Mormon is more like the history Yes, I mean it. Mm-hmm. It, it provides a really good, and we're gonna. One of the things we're gonna do tonight, we're gonna take a little bit of time to actually go what go over what's in the Book of Mormon, and do a little bit of an outline of it, uh, the Pearl of Great Price, the Doctrine of Covenants, and talk about their uh, their general authorities. And if since it's been in the news so much, I, I had a little bit of material worked up on Jesus the Son or the brother of Lucifer, but y'all, I don't know if you've heard, but that's been in the news, the national news here in the U.S. all week, because Mike Huckabee, who has come on strong in the Republican nomination uh, to, to try to get the Republican nomination for the presidency, uh, made a statement on Monday or Tuesday, you heard it, or he's yeah. Right. So, you know, a week ago today, I think it was, Romney had that speech on his faith, and he mentioned, you know, that he shouldn't be judged based on his faith. Um, but anyway, I think it was like Monday or Tuesday, a reporter was talking to Mike Huckabee, and the reporter asked him some things about that, and somehow, offhandedly, or maybe intentionally, he said, don't the Mormons believe that Jesus is Satan's brother? Mm-hmm. Okay, and it's been a pure. I mean, it's been. Just asked that as a question. Well, yeah, he asked that as a question. I mean, he. I, I think he knew that they taught that. Yes, and so is Romney. See, and by the way, Romney. I don't know if I mentioned this the other day, but he does have a his his folks are back in the LDS Church from the way back at the beginning. I mean, way at the top too. So he's he is by no means a stranger to what they believe although he is very carefully avoiding trying to be a, an apologist for the church, which he, he would just go down in flames if he did. But any time they... And by the way, the LDS church today or yesterday issued a statement about all this, trying to quash it as well. And they're trying to distance themselves from that teaching. But I'm going to show you, if we have time tonight, I'll show you that, uh, 
they do indeed teach that and have always taught that. And even in their, in, in their statement, they admit it in a general sense, but they try to sugarcoat it. But they're very good at that sort of thing. They have to be. Ooh, I, it would really be brutal. Yeah. So we'll look at an overview of the Mormon scriptures, their general authorities. Now, we mentioned uh, the other night how they look at the Bible. Um, Mormons do use the King James Version of the Bible, even though they do have the, J- the Joseph Smith translation available to them. Um, and we remember that the eighth of their articles of faith state that we believe the Bible to be the Word of God so far as it is correctly translated, although really that doesn't hit at the heart of what they believe about the Bible. They believe mostly what? Exactly. Very good. I feel that it wasn't transmitted to the present day correctly, that it got corrupted by whom in particular? The great and abominable, abominable church. Now, yeah, the difference in translation and translation means the Greek text we have are not good. Right. And so, Christ alone translated perfectly in English, and translation would be good, mm-hmm. but the transmission of getting the text. Right. Would, would ruin it. And think back to the original Greek. The scriptures are translated correctly. They used to object to that, but they don't now because so many of them now know Greek really, really well. They know it's translated correctly, and by the way, they could produce their own version. Or, you know, they, could, they have not done that, but they could produce a, a good scholarly work with it. But it's the transmission. They believe that, uh, that it was transmitted to us, uh, corrupted. They would have to maintain that, although... As we pointed out last night, there's really just not a lot of evidence that, as taught in the Book of Mormon, as, as we look, that is one of the things that's in there. Because one of the things that is in the Book of Mormon is quotes that would cast uh, uh, doubt on the Bible. Okay, and that's one of them. Uh, but at any rate, it states clearly that it was corrupted. Many things in its quotation here, many things plain and precious. Now, when you ask one, what was plain and precious taken from the Bible? Well, they're going to—they would have to, to talk about some of these doctrines that they hold, like plurality of gods and salvation uh, being on the terms that they describe them. The problem is those things aren't taught in the Book of Mormon. So why, why then the Book of Mormon? Well, the only answer plausibly that could be is because this is a history, as you pointed out, of God's dealings with these people. So the bottom line is the Book of Mormon does not reveal, as it was supposed to, these plain and precious things. That actually came in the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. Now, they don't trust the Bible. We know that. Uh, so what the, let's look at some of their other scriptures. The Book of Mormon, <clears throat> Article 8, the same article that mentions the Bible and their distrust of it. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. And there's no qualifying thing about translation there. Now, you can think of a pretty good reason why there wouldn't be any qualified statement about translation there. And it's because of the method by which, you know, if you look at the Book of Mormon transmission-wise, it was brought by an angel. It was translated by the power of God, by inspiration. And that's why in the foreword to today, uh, 
it's the most correct of any book on the earth. You would have to hold that view, wouldn't you? Uh, never mind the roughly 4,000 changes in it. All right. What is actually in this book uh, that's so important that they even continue to wear the name Mormon? <clears throat> well, first of all, it is, as we mentioned, a history, primarily a history of three migrations. Two of them are significant. Uh, really only one is dealt with in any length at all. But there are three mentions, and the first one is that of the Jaredites. Now, the Jaredites... Uh, were there in the, uh, the plain of Shinar, just as a family, and they were, uh, they were told to leave at the time of the Tower of Babel um, and, uh, and travel to America. Uh, these are the ones that would have gone by way of the Atlantic. Um, and these came to America, <clears throat> and they were actually extant here for, according to the Book of Mormon, for many, many years. Uh, and then uh, the Mulekites came. That was the act, and, and I'm out of sequence because I want to deal with the two minor, uh, um, the two minor uh, migrations before we get into the uh, the major one that's dealt with throughout most of the Book of Mormon. Uh, these Jaredites came around 2000 BC. They grew. They prospered. They became uh, numbered in the millions. Uh, their last known survivor, Coriantumur, uh, was found by the Mulekites who were about to introduce uh, sometime before 200 B.C. Yes, sir? Jeremiah and Mulekites, is that ever mentioned in the scriptures? No. No, these are not names that are known in the scriptures. Although, the closest they really get is uh, the Mulekites. Mulek was supposed to be the the uh, well, the youngest living. I'm sorry, the the last living son of Zedekiah. Now he was the last king in Israel, Zedekiah. So this Mulek was to be his last. But, there, but there's no mention of that in the scriptures. Uh, at any rate, uh, he came or began his migration with his family about 586. Well, that number ought to ring a bell with you. What what happened in 586 in Jerusalem? That's right. That's right. There were three, just to get it, we had the, the carrying away that happened in 605, then you had 597 and 586 because they had been given the, the Babylonians so much trouble. That's when the city was destroyed. So, yeah, this, is, this happened just prior to that destruction of Jerusalem, according to the Book of Mormon. And, uh, and they came to America. Now, interesting that they didn't encounter the Lamanites and the... Uh, and the Nephites until around 200 B.C. But by this point, they were not a huge population, and they just amalgamated with the Nephites, essentially, at that point. Now, I mentioned here the second. It's the third one we've mentioned, but chronologically the second uh, was begun around 600, really about 605, just prior to the fall of Jerusalem. Not the fall in the sense the ultimate fall, but when it did actually come under the control of Nebuchadnezzar in 605. <clears throat> and this, this storyline comes from, from that point all the way up until 421 A.D., so significantly after the period of the, the, uh, the New Testament, by a couple, 300 years or so. Uh, the storyline goes like this. Uh, they were warned to, excuse me, they were warned to go 
into the wilderness, and then they would learn what they were to do. They would get out of the city of Jerusalem because it was about to fall. They went out and they lived in the wilderness there in the southern area of Arabia for about eight years. And during this period of time, that's when they began to get things prepared for the journey. Now, they went by way of the Pacific, uh, according to you know their belief. Uh, I, I state this without casting, I don't want to cast too much, I just want to tell you the story so you get it in there. But they went by way of the, the Pacific uh, there were the sons of Lehi. Lehi was a he was a prophet. He was a, a very good man, and he had these these sons, Laman and Lemuel and Nephi. And Nephi becomes if you read the Book of Mormon, and I can remember uh, reading this when I was a child and growing up. That when you read Nephi, it just makes you feel good because Nephi is always good, almost always good. Uh, especially early on, you read about the Nephites, and they were just faithful. Nephi was Nephi was a lot like Joseph in the Bible. And in fact, Laman and Lemuel, who are almost always characterized as evil, uh, they're very much like Joseph's brothers. And just like with Joseph, what happened was Nephi, because he was righteous, he was submissive, submissive to his father, he was submissive to doing things righteously, these... Uh, Laman and Lemuel, well, they resented him, just like Joseph. The story reads just a lot like that. The dynamics that play are just a lot like Joseph. Um, <clears throat> and so they began to, they just began to get increasingly hostile towards him, and then really things get bad when Lehi, his, their father, dies. And, uh, of course, their populations over the years grow, and the the conflict get, it gets worse and worse until finally they start having battles, open battles. And really, if you if you want to analyze the biggest chunk of just in terms of raw material, what's in the Book of Mormon, it is a description of these battles. And yeah, there are spiritual concepts in there that are thrown in and the righteousness of the Nephites versus the apostasy or, or, or the, the wickedness of the Lamanites. Uh, and the Lamanites, by the way, Lemuel just kind of gets absorbed up into the, and they become the Lamanites. Uh, but anyway, the wickedness of the Lamanites uh, is dealt with, but again, the, the main thrust, the, the, the material is dealing with these conflicts, these battles. Now, the Nephites do go through periods like the judges. It reads very much like the judges in this period, where they they go through... They're, they're righteous and things are good and then they get a little arrogant and then they get a little more wicked and they step away from the Lord and then they're chastised and they're reproved and then they come back and become wicked, uh, righteous again. So you, you can see how that storyline is... Uh, and I will give them this. Joseph Smith was familiar with the Bible because he, he throws in... By, I mean, Huge sections in through here are direct quotations, and this is a, an interesting point uh, against the Book of Mormon. That Joseph Smith always they always railed against the scriptures because in the New King or in the King James version of the Bible there were italicized words, and they said these words weren't in the scripture; these are added by men. Well, large sections of Isaiah are quoted Isaiah 53 in its entirety. It's even been recently. Within the last 20 years, the versification has become exactly like Isaiah 53, 12 verses. And it is exactly the book of the New King James with the italicized words. 
And it's just puzzling stuff like that. Like, but, but certainly he used the scriptures very liberally, and they are very much part of the Book of Mormon because it helped him get through it. All right. They go through these things, and I, I didn't mention this, but it was on the slide. Uh, the Lamanites at one point in time do, they do, uh, I guess they got tired of writing that same over, that thing over and over because it is fairly repetitious about their ups and downs. But at one point in time the Lamanites became more righteous than the Nephites. And, uh, and the Nephites were chastised pretty roundly about that. Eventually Jesus appears in ancient America. And the timing for this is not while he was obviously alive in the land of Judea, Samaria, Galilee, that, you know, he was he, not then, but after he was resurrected, he came to America. And uh, during his preaching to the Nephite, he brings, again, messages very similar to those that are found in the Bible. The version of the Sermon on the Mount is very close. Uh, there are other uh, similar messages. He does miracles, just like he does in the New Testament. And then finally, he reascends into heaven. <clears throat> Well, as people want to do, after the passage of time, the Nephites become wicked again, and ultimately they warrant the complete destruction of their civilization. And uh, that happens just around 400, well, 400 uh, A.D., so sorry, A.D., 400. And uh, at about that time, the Lamanites pretty well completely wiped them out, with the exception of one man, and that is the prophet, uh, I'm so sorry, yeah, the prophet Moroni, the son of Mormon. <clears throat> Mormon has been keeping a lot of these records, and that's one reason it, it bears his name, the book. Okay? Lamanites continue on, and they become, according to prolific writing, <coughs> excuse me, of early Mormons into the last century, um, the middle of last century even, they were the ancestors to the American Indians. And as I mentioned, uh, I think on that first night there, they, the Mormon position on this has slowly shifted as the position has become less and less tenable. And I also mentioned, you know, they, they made a misstep, which is they were the principal ancestors of the American Indian. And then about four weeks ago, they made a statement that they were among the ancestors. Well, the fact is, there's no evidence to support that there's any connection at all. And, of course, right here at the end of this, this uh, Moroni, he hides out away. They don't know he's alive. <clears throat> um, he hides out. He finishes the recording the book, makes his way from where the battle occurred, somewhere up in toward your neck of the woods up there, actually east of you guys and buries the plate in, in uh, Palmyra, New York, in a hill that uh, is called the Hill Cumorah. All right. <clears throat> now, James chapter 1, verse 5, I mentioned this. If you're ever studying with Mormons, they like to appeal to this passage. Uh, they're going to ask you, have you ever read the Book of Mormon? Um, it's good. I, I don't mean to be ugly, but it is good sleepy time material because it's so very re redundant in places. Some of it's interesting. I won't, I won't deny it, but there's so much that's just not there. And, and if you do read it, then I encourage you to read it so that you can answer that question. Yes, I have read it, and, and uh, I don't believe it's the Word of God because it doesn't have the evidence to support it that it is. Uh, it has a lot of problems. Maybe tomorrow night if we get through 
the subject of salvation, we'll take a look at some pretty severe problems with the Book of Mormon. All right, <clears throat> but Mormons are going to ask you to, to read it and pray over it, uh, that, that, that God will lead you to, to discern its truthfulness. And uh, although James chapter 1, verse 5, does allude to the fact, doesn't allude to the fact, it teaches that um, if we lack wisdom, we should ask of God. But that's not asking for wisdom. That's asking for essentially a revelation directly from God. And we don't have any business asking God for a direct revelation on this matter. There's nothing that would support that. So we can't tell him I've read about it. Now, I can, and I have told him, look, I did read the Book of Mormon, and I have read about it and prayed about it, and I currently do not believe it is the Word of God, but I wouldn't encourage a Christian to do that because I don't think that's a scriptural thing to do. Uh, I did that prior to becoming a Christian. Um, what they probably got in mind is the Doctrine of Covenants 9.8 when it says, Behold, I say to you that you must study it out in your own mind, uh, then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause you that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. So that really, and the reason I even took the time to put that in there is, that is, uh, like Pentecostals and so many, that pretty well sums up how they believe that the Holy Spirit directly reveals things to them. In fact, I can remember as a child, well, I was probably 13, 14 at this time. Uh, we went to a camp. And uh, one of the little exercises that they had us to do started out innocuous. And they would write a letter to God. You know, we were all sitting around. Write a letter to God. Okay, so you spend your time in what you would say to God. You know, it's a prayer. You know, you're writing a prayer. Okay, now, you know, after they sit down there, we read through our letters and everything. Like, now go out into the woods and write the answer. Yeah, write what you think God would say back. Well, you go out into the woods and sit there, and I don't know, I'd be like, okay, what do you think he would say? And, and you write it out. And then you come back, and then you, you read it, and then that, it starts taking on a significance, and maybe, maybe that is what God said to you. You see how that's kind of subverse, you know, it's a pretty clever way to, you know, it starts off, I'm just going to write a letter to God, now I'll answer it. Well, they wouldn't say it that clearly. They wouldn't say that. But why not? Could be. You know, like I can remember one of the things, I'm embarrassed to say this now, but I mean, I was pretty young. You know, be of good cheer. You know, I used biblical words, you know, biblical expressions. Joshua chapter 1, be of good cheer, and, you know, things that, I, you know, that God might say to me. And then, and I can remember looking at it thinking, wow, could, could that be? Well, that's exactly how they, you know, got their revelations, that they took biblical sounding words that said what they wanted said, and then said it's, it's from God. So that gives you a good view of their, their view of inspiration. <clears throat> All right, the doctrine and covenants. And now we're starting to get to where the rubber meets the road in terms of what they, what contains Mormon teachings. Uh, more specifically, uh, this book contains 137 modern revelations of Joseph Smith. Uh, one of the uh, one vision again of uh, Joseph F. Smith. Uh, he had about 19, 1912. I'm sorry, uh, and then two official declarations. I mentioned those early on. 
Uh, the first of the declarations being the manifesto in 1890 to end polygamy, uh, polygamous marriage. Although, even though that declaration is in there, declaration number one, uh, doctrine and covenant section 132 remains, and it clearly teaches polygamy. So, <clears throat> you tell me, I mean, if you were, if you were an LDS person, would you take the official declaration, or would you take the revelation? I think I'd go with revelation. I mean, if you're looking for authority, it really doesn't come down to that. And then the last of the, uh, the, the official declarations was in 1978 to allow black men to serve in the priesthood. Uh, among the things that are taught, now this will get you, give you some idea of what the contents of the Doctrine and Covenants are. Uh, now, it reads very richly. It's very easy for me to read. Well, sections are very easy to read because it's, it's almost like reading yellow journalism because you, it's so clear that what's being said, this is a man taking care of, of the situation, pretending to speak for God very conveniently. The first one uh, that I take note of is the Apostle John was to remain alive on the earth. Joseph Smith, the junior, is named as the seer, translator, prophet, apostle, and elder of the church. Basically, he is it. This is, this is the one that I thought was particularly good. It's uh, uh, section 28. Let me go back here and grab my, my uh, little Book of Mormon thingy. It's up here, sorry. Uh, sometimes, do, do any of y'all have a Book of Mormon and or a Doctrine and Covenant from Pearl of Great Price? They will give you a, a Pearl of Great Price Doctrine and Covenant if you ask. Because I didn't pay for them. I, I asked them for them. I went and talked to the bishop and said, I, I really want, I'm studying about it. And I want, you know, this is a long time ago. Uh, let's see. Section 28. I read it in my old book last night. It's just hilarious because, well, let me just, I'll just give you an idea here at the beginning. Revelation given to this is the four the little section framing it up. This isn't Revelation itself. Revelation given through Joseph Smith the prophet in the presence of six elders at Fayette, New York, September 1830. Okay, this revelation was given some days prior to the conference beginning in 1870. I'm sorry, in uh, September 26. Uh, actually, they took. I noticed just all now already. They took some of the stuff out of the foreword there. Revelation given through Joseph Smith the prophet to Oliver Cowdery. Uh, at Fayette, New York, September 1830. Hiram Page, one of the witnesses, not, he's one of the eight witnesses. There's a three and there's an eight. They got slightly different things going on. A member of the church had a certain stone. By the way, Joseph used a stone. So I wonder where he got that idea. Uh, had a stone that he used to help translate the Book of Mormon after he lost the Urim and Thummim. Okay. Most of the Book of Mormon was translated with a stone. So here's Hiram Page with a stone. He had a certain stone. And professed to be receiving revelations by its aid concerning the upbuilding of Zion and the order of the church. Well, that's a problem because Joseph Smith's the only game in town. And how are you going to control this thing if everybody starts getting revelations? And if everybody's toting a stone, that ain't going to work too good. All right, so... Uh, verse 2 but behold verily verily I say unto thee no one shall be appointed to receive commandments and revelations in this church except my servant Joseph Smith Jr. for he received them even as Moses and it, it gets it's every bit that clear stop receiving them uh, and again thou Oliver Calvary take thy brother Hiram Page between him and thee alone and tell him 
that those things which he hath written from that stone are not of me, and that Satan deceiveth him. <laughs> so anyway, I won't do a lot of that, but I just, I just found that. It's so convenient, these revelations. I'm the only revelator. That ain't from God. That's, that's deceitful. The one I read you last night after the class about um, that he should pretend to no other gift, that he would even choose the word pretend is because it kind of, the whole thing was pretended. It's rather bold that he would say, because it, it points out the very discreet, distinct possibility that he could pretend. It was, if I were reading it, I would think, wow, pretend. He could pretend to another. Wait a minute, maybe he pretended about these gifts. Well, he was. Um, Independence, Missouri is supposed to be the site of the first Mormon temple. It was not by any stretch of the mind. Uh, uh, the site of the first Mormon temple, in fact, as we pointed out, the site that was uh, consecrated for that purpose still doesn't have a temple on it to this day. It was prophesied that it would happen in that generation. still hasn't happened. Although the, the RLDS, or the Community of Christ, have put a temple nearby. Details on the fall of Satan, Son's Perdition, Three Kingdoms of Heaven that we'll be studying tomorrow night, uh, and the nearly universal salvation of the terrestrial kingdom. That's in section 76. Except the son's I'm so sorry? Except the son's perdition. The nearly universal salvation. Exactly. You said it right. Except for those sons of perdition. Uh, baptisms for the dead. Uh, God inhabits a body of flesh and bone. That's in there. Polygamy allowed. And, uh, and that sort of thing. Pearl Great Price. Introductory note into the Pearl of Great Price is as follows. This is a, 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 really the, the Pearl of Great Price was never intended to be revelation, or never intended to be uh, parts of it weren't intended to be viewed as scripture, even though now it clearly is. You'll see that some sections clearly were, uh, so they were taken from periodicals and things that Joseph Smith was translating at the time. They were appearing in some of their periodicals, and then they took them. In, put them into these books, Book of Moses and whatnot. These items were produced by Joseph Smith, Jr. and were published in the church periodical. Well, you see that of that day. Four short books and the Articles of Faith. The Book of Moses. Uh, really what the Book of Moses is, is taken from the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, Genesis chapters 1 through 8, except Genesis chapters 1 through 8 in the Joseph Smith Bible are radically different than our Bible. Uh, it's one of the reasons, I guess, Kathy, when I first began to study, that's what I had. I had a Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. I didn't really know it was different. So I sit down with Kathy to study the Bible, and I'm like, yeah. And pretty soon she starts seeing the verses and stuff not lining up. She says, here, let me get you another Bible. Why don't we read from this one? And she was very savvy to figure out that's what we needed to do. And she didn't know what was going on, but she was like, inspired version? I knew that. So anyway, chapters 1 through 8 get into a whole, it gets into this whole thing about Enoch and what he saw and Abraham and what he saw about Jesus Christ, named Jesus Christ right there, Sam. You know, that's one thing you'll notice I didn't point it out in the Book of Mormon is you've got the church hundreds of years, you've got baptism hundreds of years before the New Testament. So, you know, it's kind of... He, he didn't, I don't know how he got away with that early on because it still seems like one of the more odd things about it to me. Then you've got the book of Abraham. Now this is what was taken from those papyri that I mentioned that he bought from the traveling lecturer that had the mummies. Um, 
that was completely discredited in 1967. It has the book, uh, well, it's called Matthew, but it's really the 24th chapter of Matthew from the JST Bible, and it contains a, a pretty elaborate uh, millennial um, discussion that's not in the 24th chapter of, of the book of Matthew. And then Joseph Smith's history, and essentially what this is is his uh, just his own personal narrative of what happened to him uh, while he was receiving these revelations, uh, his first vision, how he set up the church, and that sort of thing. Hieroglyphics, mm-hmm. Right. It's it's the one where I mentioned that not only you know at the time there was a professor Anton who it was brought to and. They didn't know how to do hieroglyphics. They didn't really know how to do hieroglyphics well until they had the Rosetta Stone, which had the Greek, the Egyptian, and Hebrew? No, something else. Anyway, it was three languages. Maybe in Arabic. I'm not sure. Sorry about that. But uh, it was three languages, and that's when they learned how to do hieroglyphics. That's it. Very good. And that's, so they knew uh, then how to, to translate it, and they've gotten better and better and better. So that by, time, by the time these things resurfaced in 1967, they looked at it and it was like, it's a funeral, a funerary document. An Egyptian, very, it's a very pagan document. It talks about things you would expect, you know, these Egyptian gods and that. And in fact, even in, even in this book, I mean, <laughs> they now publish, I mean, it's bizarre to me that they actually publish the, um, Let's see, I got it here. They actually published the facsimile of those. Um, but at any rate, it's also the one that I mentioned, uh, the trans, the, um, and you, yeah, the, uh, the character ratio. Yeah, it had nothing, nothing to do with the Book of Abraham. And again, the character to word, you know, it's one character for every 24 words. So those are some very powerful characters to be able to, Present that message. Here you go. This church is this this organization is amazingly. I mean, what's their comeback to it? Here's another part. Uh, one of the funeral funeraries, but well, it's very embarrassing to say the least. And. Uh, the, as I mentioned, the reorganized church, what they said about it was the truth. He said it was purely the figment of Joseph Smith's imagination. What the LDS church says about it is he had that, but God revealed information to him through inspiration that's not necessarily implicit in, the, in, those, in those Egyptian characters. In other words, they just distanced themselves from he actually needed those that they were just a vehicle, almost like a spiritist would do. And what they would say is that these things must have been in the possession of Abraham at some point in time. And so there's a connection there. It's almost like spiritism. But, but again, they don't even really want to talk about it at all. They're not going to highlight that. Oh, there's no question at all that he claimed he translated them. There are plenty, there, the Journal of Discourses. One of the things that Mormonism has done is it's documented. I mean, you can see it from these books I've got over here. They documented their history extremely well, which is a blessing to us because it really, they cannot hide from their past. It is there. 
And then the Articles of Faith, the last section here, is uh, basically the 13 fundamental sections of, or, or beliefs of Mormonism that they want you to think about. And it was uh, sent to a, an editor of the Chicago Tribune, uh, Mr. Wentworth, as part of a Wentworth letter. All right, the general authority. Now, this is, this is also, and we're almost done with this thing, and, and we'll get into the other uh, discussion of Jesus here pretty quickly. Uh, the prophet, and one reason it's important for you to know <clears throat> this little section here is because I've been quoting a lot from apostles and the presidents and some from 70s. Well, if, that's, if they're just guys, then why would you quote from Why would we say that? Well, the fact is they believe that these men are inspired, that they are the living oracles of God today. So, and I've got just a couple of quotes on that. Um, that which the president of this church has said, have said, presidency of this church have said. Now, that's not just presidents, but all those up until 1947 at least. And now say, and say now, is as much the law and the gospel as anything that has ever been said or written before for our guidance. That includes Brigham Young, Joseph Smith, Sidney Riggs, and all that. He is the He is clearly referred to as the just as Joseph Smith referred to himself, he is the prophet, he is the seer, he is the revelator, and the president. So he is the all. No, he is not. No, although it's really kind of funny because if, if I understand he's got three men on his council who are considered apostles in addition to the twelve, the quorum of the twelve, which are all apostles, and they are, you know what, I'm wrong. He is, I remember now, he is an apostle, and so are the other two, two counselors to the first presidency, and so it's a total of 15 apostles on the earth at any given time, not 12. And then you have the 70s, and there are 70 of those, but they are part of the general authorities, and the general authorities are the living oracles of God on the earth. When you see any document, any address, any letter, any instruction that is issued by the Council of the First Presidency in the Quorum of Twelve, it should be recognized for what it surely is, the mind and will of the Lord to this people in this day. All right, now let's just take a look at a few passages. I think I left my Bible at home. No, it isn't. That would have been a dumb thing. Look at, we, we know these passages. We've looked at uh, all but one of them already. But Galatians chapter 1, one reason they don't like this passage and would love to at least use it for their purposes, as we mentioned last night, is it clearly teaches that it doesn't matter who would bring, even if, even if Joseph Smith saw an angel, and that angel is to be rejected, because he's preaching another gospel than that which we have received. So that, that's plain and simple. Uh, Jude chapter 3, I'm sorry, Jude verse 3. The gospel was not taken away. It was once delivered for the saints and has remained until this day. And then, of course, Acts chapter 17 verse 11. These Bereans, they were more noble. Did they trust Paul? Did they take his word for it? No. What they did is they searched scriptures daily to see if the things written were so, or things that he was telling them were so. If Mormons would do the same thing, they would draw the same conclusion that we've drawn. These men are frauds because they're not in harmony with the revelation of God. All right. 
We have 15 minutes, and I, I, I told you that wouldn't be very much scripture there, uh, but I think it's very important to understand that in order to understand um, the Mormon mindset. If you're going to be talking to them and you don't understand this, it'll be completely bewildering. Now, this is the subject that we mentioned that's been in the news a lot. The Mormon view of Jesus is <clears throat> at least startling, if not repulsive, uh, to those of us who believe the Bible, who love Jesus Christ for who he is and what he's done. Because what they believe is that he is a God whose name is Jehovah in the Bible. And by the way, anytime they see the Tetragrammaton translated Jehovah, that's Jesus to them, even in the Old Testament. He is the God whose name is Jehovah in the Bible. He was born by the, as the result of God having sexual relationships physically with Mary. He is not the only God, uh, son of God. In fact, Lucifer is one of his younger brothers, and that's the thing that's been in the news all lately. And just as Elohim, God, Jesus continues to have a physical body. Now, unlike Elohim, and this will make a little bit more sense tomorrow night, uh, he somehow progressed to God who is in the first estate. Uh, and that is the pre-carnate state in which there was matter and intelligences, is how they, they word it. Okay? And we looked at the, the creation last night, their view of... All right, so this, this is the outline of the lesson. He is Jehovah, one of the sons of God. He's physically fathered by Elohim, inhabits a body of flesh and bones, and progressed to Godhood in the first estate. Now, again, quite a few co- uh, quotes here. Bear this in mind. Now, remember I mentioned today, like yesterday or today, they put a thing out on LDS.org. Evidently that says that, you know, they're distancing themselves. What they say is, because they believe this, we're all the spirit children. And when you hear that word spirit children, that means that we are the children fathered by God in heaven prior to coming to this earth. That's what they, they mean when they say that. And you're a spirit child of God, I'm a spirit child of God, Jesus is a spirit child of God, and so was Lucifer. The story of Lucifer is the most terrible example of such apostasy. He pitted his own plan against the will and purposes of God. This is one of the things, by the way, that's found in the first eight chapters of the book of Genesis, is this discussion about Lucifer's plan. Lucifer's plan was, I want to be the savior of mankind. And my plan is, I'll take away their agency, and I'll make everyone, you won't lose one soul if you let me do it, but I want some of the glory. That's the Mormon, that's what's in their first eight chapters, part of their first eight chapters of the book of Genesis. Jesus, however, at that time, it came before the Father and said, your will be done, the glory be yours, and we'll leave agency in place. And so he was selected to be the first, well, he was selected to be the the Savior at that point. All right. Um, when Satan, and this is the proposition that's talked about here, when his proposition was re- rejected, he forsook all that he had gained. He was no longer Lucifer, bearer of truth, who walked in the light, but he became, but he became, my word became, Satan, the teacher of untruth, who slunk in darkness. He became the enemy of God and of all who tried to walk according to the Lord's commandment. And one third of the spirits, sorry about that, one-third of the spirits present in that vast assembly supported Satan and became, in, became enemies of the truth that they had formerly cherished. With him, these rebellious spirits lost their fellowship with the valiant sons of God. 
Bruce McConkie, Apostle, Evidences and Reconciliations. Similarly, there's another quote from the President, Prophet Spencer Kimball. Kimball, uh, he was president in the middle part of last century. Similarly, Satan had contended for the subservience of Moses. Remember how we talked about they like to take a little bitty thing and make some big thing about it? Well, you know, Satan contended with Gabriel for where the box says, take that and make a thing here. Uh, they go back from there and, and get into this debate or this uh, conflict between Moses and Satan even. Also, son of God, okay, Satan, also a son of God, had rebelled and had been cast out of heaven and not permitted an earthly body as his brother Jehovah. Okay, his brother Jehovah. That's Jesus. Much depended on the outcome of this spectacular duel. Could, cruci- could Lucifer control and dominate the prophet Moses, who had learned so much directly from his Lord? So all this is showing us that his brother is Jehovah, Jesus. So they can say they don't believe that, but their prophets have taught that. And maybe it may be offensive to them enough where they, they won't believe it, but their prophets did teach it for sure. Those that we just looked at a few minutes ago that they looked at as authoritative. All right. He physically was fathered uh, by Jehovah. And so in the final analysis, it is the faithful saints, those who have the testimonies of the truth and divinity of this great Latter-day work, who declare our Lord's generation to the world, their testimony is that Mary's son is God's son, that he was conceived and begotten in the normal way. Okay? That he took upon himself mortality by the natural birth processes, that he inherited the power of mortality from his mother and the power of immortality from his father, in consequence, all of which he was able to work out the infinite and eternal atonement. All right. Uh, Yeah. And when that time came, his firstborn, the Savior, should come into the world and take a tabernacle. The Father came himself and favored that spirit with the tabernacle instead of letting any other man do it. The Savior was begotten by the Father of his Spirit, by the same being who is the Father of our spirits, and that is and that is all the organic difference between Jesus Christ and you and me. So it may be nested in there, but what he's saying is the difference you know, you and I, we were all we're all spirit children in the pre in the first estate, in our pre incarnate state. Just like Jesus was. We were all that. But Jesus is different. Because not only did God create him spiritually like that, he begot him in the flesh that way. So that's how he, that's all the organic difference between you and I and Jesus. The way they say it is angels, demons, God, man are, are all of one species. And we are only different in terms of how exalted we are. That's, that's their belief on that. And uh, again, just like Jehovah, or rather just like Elohim, God the Father in their view, uh, Jesus has a physical body. He was the son of our heavenly father, as we are the sons of our earthly fathers, God the father of our spirits, which are clothed upon by fleshly bodies, Begotten for us by our earthly fathers, Jesus is our elder brother, spirit clothed upon with an earthly body, begotten of the father of our spirits, and that's Brigham Young. Where is Jesus? He is in heaven, but he is in heaven physically. Very, he is physically at the right hand of a physical God 
who if we were to see them, they would look just like us. He progressed to Godhood in the first estate. Now this is unusual because one of their key teachings is that in order to get to Godhood yourself, and even Jehovah, I'm sorry, even Elohim had to do this, you have to get a physical body. And that's one of the reasons why Satan's punishment was so great is because when he led away a third of the armies of heaven, a third of the hosts of heaven, God's spirit children, he then became denied of the ability to have a physical body. So he could never progress any further. So that was a big blow to him. Jesus, however, is the only one. He's very unique in that he attained Godhood in that first estate without ever having a physical body somehow. Yes, sir? So the whole season of Jesus overachieved over Godhood still... That's right. Kind of now, <clears throat> I will say this, that in our realm that does seem to be the, the reality of the situation, but unlike the Jehovah's Witnesses who see Jesus as a lesser God, the Mormons don't really see Jesus as a lesser God. They do see him as co-equal but not greater than Elohim. Just another God. Okay. <clears throat> During this premortal life, Jesus Christ rose to the status of God, but at the time he was foreordained to be the Savior of this world. Father Abraham was privileged to see in the vision the grand council in heaven. I mentioned this last night, when, or the night before when we looked at Psalm 82, that they, they see this big council of many gods. And this is also there in Genesis, this whole council there. Uh, this council was held prior to the peopling of this earth, and he saw, as the Lord showed him, many of the great and noble ones. But the key thing I'm pointing out here is during his pre-mortal life, Jesus Christ rose to the status of Godhood. Only one ever, that ever did that. All right. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Let's, let's take just a minute, because we're done, essentially. We're going to look at these uh, few passages. John chapter 1. And uh, very familiar to us because it's such a powerful teaching about who God is. It is the passage that strongly refutes Jehovah's Witnesses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So this simply states, Jesus is God. Now, if we look at Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verse 8, we read, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, what conclusion could you draw from those two passages? If Jesus is God and he has not been changing, and this is... He always was God. He always was God. There was no pre-mortal progression to go through. There was none of this bickering about who's going to go become the savior of the world. There is none of this uh, being born spirit children. Jesus Christ, God. I want to read one last thing here from the front page of the Book of Mormon. I thought it was really interesting. It makes the point pretty well. This is in the... Uh, <laughs> Now this is at the end of the testimony of the three witnesses. And that's Oliver Calvary, David Whitner, Whitmer, and Martin Harris. We feel like we know these people now. I do. <laughs> and, and the honor, this is the last sentence, and the honor be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost 
which is one God, amen. That was 19, I'm sorry, 18, 20, 1830, before all this craziness crept in. They state something right there in that witness that the Mormons do not believe. They explicitly believe that they're each one individual God. So anyway, um, hopefully tomorrow night we can take a look at, uh, and, and by the way, I'd be glad to answer any questions that may have sprung up in your mind. Uh, I'm sorry that we didn't have more Bible study in this lesson. I felt like with the limited time we got left, it would be good for you guys to get the more, a little bit more of that modern-day Mormon psyche in your head of how they look at authority and why it can be so tough to, to study with them. Um, because you can prove something from the Bible and, and it's, they don't stick with them. It can be very frustrating. So the, the final authority is what? Really, that's a very, very good question because uh, there's been some debate about that. In fact, there's been some revelation about that. <laughs> because you can see that this was, you know, well, just like, you know, just like with uh, Martin Harris and, 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 and Page, this fellow Page receiving the revelation by his self, well, well hey, if, if God, how can Joseph Smith be the only one to claim revelation? You know, how can he do that? If this guy believes that he saw revelation or received revelation from God, how can you deny him that? It, without denying that someone could deny you that. You know what I'm saying? So it's kind of a self-eating watermelon, you may have heard that expression. But there's been debate about this subject. If I receive, because just like I was just you know, telling you, that they have me out there writing a letter to God and then answering it, and then I am not, I'm helped along in my belief that this could actually be from God to me, which, by the way, and I'll digress for just one more second, Mormons, both LDS and Church of, or Community of Christ that, that, that I came out of, have something called the Patriarchal Blessing. You will receive a special revelation from God to you, and it will come through an office called the Patriarch, and you'll have your Patriarchal Blessing, and it will be from God to you, for you get one per life, and, and it will tell you all. I never had one. I wasn't old enough to get one. Uh, my mom and all my brothers, they got, they got patriarchal blessings, and they go back and they read them. Because this is from God to them, about like a horoscope. So if you ever read one, uh, because it's very vague in general, and you can see how they would be, it's like a form letter, okay? But, but the bottom line on that is that's a, that's a, that's a uh, personal revelation. You're encouraged to receive the Spirit, just like a holiness. You know, some of the, some of the holiness would believe God can reveal things to you with that burning in the bosom, with revelation. So, which one's the most authoritative? And the revelations that have come from the First Presidency and the Prophet are the ones we alluded to earlier. They are the ones that count more than if you receive a personal revelation. You, and it conflicts with what the presidency, first presidency has said, then that is to be rejected. You have been deceived, just like Page. I've got some quotes in there. I didn't put it in here because I thought it distracts from the main point, but, but there are plenty of quotes where they, they're saying no private, no private stuff that conflicts with the work of the church. The most the president, the current that's right. So you can just wake up one morning and say, that's not working for us, let's do this. That's right. And that's, that's authority. 
That's right. Just like 1978. You know, the, if you read some of the early revelations and such, blacks were the seed of Cain. And Cain. They were uh, they were marked because of wickedness. Uh, they were not to be received in the in the in the kingdom. When the Mormons were to go out and evangelize the Lamanites, they, as a result of that, as they became more righteous, they would become more white. They would become less red, less dark, less heathen. They would physically be transformed into uh, more like Aryans. I mean, that's in there. And uh, so, the, so black people were very much... Uh, held back for many years. In, in fact, there were just almost none in there for a long time, but now there are, and uh, they've been allowed to be part of the priesthood. But, but that, that's an example of something that's just not going to happen, not going to happen, not going to happen. Oh, it happened. Because the revelations were these people are not to be accepted in these capacities, and then, boom, now they are. And the way, and if you read the revelations, there's such spinmeisters, and I'll quit on this. We prayed. We spent much time in the upper room of the temple. If you read that particular thing there, we spent much time in the upper petitioning the Lord that He might remove this this limitation. They 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 prayed the black people through to the priesthood. Essentially, they they besought the Lord so much that this well, they did no such thing. They just made this thing up, and it's just sickening when you read it. It's like they can get away with this because they. They've got these people in the mindset that whatever they say, that's God talking. They don't use the Bible, and if they do, then it's just to get to study and to bring them where they are. So if you're going to go on their uh, playing field, you know, you can get them, well, that doesn't work. Well, that changed, that changed, that changed. <laughs> that's right. It's, again, that's again, uh, I hear this stuff, and I'm familiar, familiar with it. The vicar of God. Absolutely. Uh, he is, he is here on earth. That's it. And whatever he says goes on, all the scriptures, that's why I say that goes, you see that. Yeah. The scriptures seem, but the full sentence is not according to us. Yeah, but at least you have some, but I'm not trying to make things one or better than the other. Right. I'm just trying to find a point that's not going to move. <laughs> That's right. No, you're right. It is very, and it's one reason I got to the point where, <laughs> when the last few times that I studied with Mormons, I had got to the point where I'm going to a, I'm going to take some time away from this guy, these guys from from spreading their false doctrine. I'm going to knock as much polish off as I can, and for that reason, I was very aggressive with them. I did. I was not. I wasn't necessarily polite. I was polite, but I wasn't. I was very aggressive with them. And and what what happened uh, on the last two times that I studied with Mormons, and just like what Bob said, but I didn't get pronounced. They didn't know I was already a son of perdition. But they would jump up and they would get to the door. You know, this is after letting them say their thing and then saying, "Well, you you teach this," and then just showing some scripture. That ain't so. And then they would get by the door, and then they would say, I believe that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God, and that the Book of Mormon is true. That was it. And they were done. They didn't, they didn't want to study no more. And I'm sorry, I know it could be better. I just it, really didn't want you guys to get an impression that... that, that it's not hopeless. It's not hopeless, and, and, and that's one reason I wanted to state early on, too, that... Uh, but, yeah, things are changing.
They are coming off, I think. Now, they're not going to go away by any stretch of the mind, but you have more chance to convert one now to the truth because of all the evidence.